We're coming to a conclusion in Elijah's story in 1 Kings 19, this portion of it. So we're going to be in 1 Kings 19, starting in the second half of verse 13. It says this, Behold, there came a voice to him, Elijah, and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek to take away my life, or seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king of Israel. And Elijah, the son of Japhat, of Abel, Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall um, Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Verse 19, I'll just keep going for a second. So he departed from there, and he found Elisha. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time that we've had looking at what it means to be renewed by you, what it means to be empowered, what it means to be filled, what it means to encounter your spirit. And as we come to this last portion of the journey of reentry, Father, I pray that you help us see how you're at work in all of the journey. We pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So uh, every summer, uh, many of you know, I take my sons on a father-son weekend called Sons of Thunder um, down at a camp in Central Oregon called Tadmore. Now, some other fathers, including Justin, helped kind of get this started. And so we inherited some of their traditions to this weekend. Now, it's a bit of a drive. So one of the things that we've inherited, and one of my favorite parts, is I put together a Sons of Thunder playlist every year. Now, this playlist is made up of songs and artists that I want to make sure my, ch- my sons hear before they leave the house. I don't want them at 18 year old, years old saying, Dad, I've never heard this artist before. Who's the Beatles? And I'm like, what do you mean? How do, have I failed you as, a, chi- as a, a father? So this is my way of being super intentional. Now, this year, I was particularly proud of the playlist. I had the Beatles, Bob Dylan, Rolling Stones, The Clash, Hillsong, Chuck Berry, Billy Joel, NSYNC, and Backstreet Boys. Thank you, Frosted Tips. Dashboard, Confessional, Misfits, No Effects, D- Run DMC, Keith Green, Queen, Taking Back Sunday, and even more. I went emo all the way back, man. It was awesome. Okay? So we leave early in the morning because we want to get to Portland for lunch. Uh, because in Portland, they have what we don't have in plethora here, which is food trucks. It's where my son Judah has learned to love shawarma. So we go down there. I encourage them to try something that they normally would not eat. So we stop there, and then the next couple of days is an absolute blast. Paintballing, shooting guns, hiking, dodgeball tournaments. As I shared a couple of weeks ago, I am now a two-time Sons of Thunder dodgeball champion, and I have nothing to show for it except a bloated ego for nothing, and that's okay. So we end our time. We go to a little uh, pizza place right in town in Lebanon called James Gang Pizza, drive through Portland, and get salt and straw uh, ice cream. So I gained about 15 pounds, but I have a blast doing it on this trip. Now, on these trips, there's, these are like really intentional times. Um, I get to disciple them. I get to bond with them. But I also start to notice more intently 
some of the, their tendencies that may be a little bit unhealthy. Now, this year, I started to notice my oldest, Judah. Now, this is the first year I propped both of them. And even Judah said this was probably the best year, so I was super thankful for that. But my oldest, I started to notice the tendency that he was kind of in the rush to get to the next thing. So he was always walking up ahead. He wasn't, like, hanging out with us. He was just kind of in an antsy, rushed way. Now, as you know, I was in the middle of my sabbatical. I, had, I was learning what it meant to slow down and enjoy the surroundings. And so I easily began to notice his hurriedness. It also doesn't hurt that my, that was my typical pace. I mean, he's at the age now where he's kind of mirroring some of my tendencies. And that was one of those where I was like, oh, is that what I'm like? Like something's got to change. So I was noticing his pace. One of the times when he was doing it, I, I pulled him aside. I, I slowed him down, and I began to give him this kind of consistent message, like multiple times a day, every time. I said, Judah, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. I mean, I said this probably a dozen times to him over the next couple of days, over and over again. And each time, followed by the typical teenage eye roll. Just like, okay, Dad, I get it. Now, fast forward a few weeks later. Our family's on the way to doing something, and we're beginning to be in a little bit of a rush. We're, we're hurrying on our way. Out of nowhere, Judah speaks up and said, Dad, remember, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. It, a little bit of a mirror right in the face, but he was beginning to get it. He was starting to understand. Now, if you're like me, you can easily forget this truth. Simple, right? I mean, Jesus was clear about this. Tomorrow will take care of itself, and every day has enough troubles of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow, is what he says in Matthew 6.34. But I'm often in a rush to get to the destination. And in hurrying to the destination, I forget that most of life is actually just a journey. We are concluding our series that we're calling A Journey to Renewal today, uh, looking at Elijah. And it's at the point now for Elijah in this story, in our journey to renewal, when things start to make sense. So for him, he was on a spiritual high, just recapping everything. After God moved through him magnificently on Mount Carmel in uh, 1 Kings 18, he had this catalytic moment of his looming death at the hands of Ahab and Jezebel. And that catalyzed him on a journey to this unknown of renewal. He started to come to an end of himself. Remember, he wrote this suicide note to God almost, where he had to rightly express all that was happening in, within him emotionally. He got some rest at the hands of an angel, got some sleep, got some food, got some hydration. And that was enough to help him embark on a 40-day journey of, into the physical and spiritual wilderness. Ultimately, last week, we looked at how he was renewed by God as he encountered the very presence and power of God. Now, this for him would have felt like an ultimate destination. Imagine sitting there on the mount and God speaking to you, you encountering God in the thin silence that we looked at last week. Now, all of life becomes to come into view of why God would, was leading him in the dark season of life. 
Somebody I, I even t- uh, heard this morning was like, yeah, the last, this two weeks before last week was kind of dark and down. And last week I was happy that it was kind of up and happy because we encountered God. But that's life, right? Life is dark. Life is hard. Life has difficulty. Life has sufferings along the way. But you get these moments of this destination, what I'll call a thin space. You get this thin space and you're like, okay, I want to stay. And yet, as a result of that, now all of life, like, okay, now I know why I experienced the wilderness. Now I get why I had to come to an end of myself. And the destination is this thin space experience. So I'm using this. Let me help unpack that for a second, because Elijah experienced what I'm talking about. Now, the term thin space or thin places is a, became popular by Celtic Christians. They arrived in Ireland in the 500s, where they adopted this idea from surrounding culture. The term communicates places where people could experience God intimately, where the distance between heaven and earth was small. It was thin. Now, let's unpack that for a second. In the garden, we know theologically, heaven and earth were once one, right? There was an, the heaven, the location of God's very presence, and the material earth that was created were united and they were overlapped in every way. God himself walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. God, as we find in Colossians, it's through him that creation itself is sustained, okay? Overlap perfectly. But sin is not just rebellion against God. Sin is separation, So as Adam and Eve were separated from God and one another, they also created this rift in the heaven and earth union. Paul says in uh, Romans 8, 19 through 23, I'm not going to read it, but he says that all creation groans waiting for the sons of God to be revealed because even the earth itself is subjected to sin. So now separation, heaven and earth, which were one, are now separated. Now, during the incarnation, which we're going to celebrate in Advent in a month or so, in Jesus, the perfect union of heaven and earth was happening again. After the resurrection and the sending of the Spirit, we now get to experience these thin places along the journey of life. When he returns, heaven and earth will once again be reunited where God himself will walk with us again, where we will have resurrected bodies, and Jesus himself will be sitting at the head of the Messianic feast table, where we will be eating the choicest meats and finest wines. But we have to wait between them. We're still in this moment when heaven and earth is separated. So thin places are those locations where the sensed experience of heaven and earth's separation is small. It's thin. The barrier between heaven and earth is almost non-existent. God's presence is easily felt. God's ways are easily known. Elijah experienced a thin place. I mean, have you ever been to a place like that where you just walked in or you just arrived and it was like the atmosphere was just different? Whereas there was a time we went on a... um, uh, like a couple retreat before a youth camp when we were youth pastors. And we walked in and we felt the prayers of the people that hosted us. And we told them, like, this, there's something different here. 
And it was because they prayed over it every single day for these people that were going to come to be renewed there. I mean, that's a thin place. Now, these thin places, they transform us. When you come into the presence of the loving God, the Father, you start to realize how much you are loved, and that changes how you are to love other people in the same way. When we know the deep forgiveness that comes from Jesus, we live freely and freely forgive other people. When we sense the presence and power of the Spirit, we walk in newness of life. These places, like Elijah, transform us. But they also are intended to train us. These destination thin places. We experience the physical thin places so that we can learn what it's like to have our hearts and our everyday life become a thin place where you can go into your own life in your own heart, where you can be so deeply abiding in Jesus, where you have the muscle developed, where you can sense his spirit amidst all of life, and you can encounter him. And I believe encountering God should be a normal experience as a disciple of Jesus, where we go beyond communicating and we learn to commune with him. Where are the thin spaces in your life now, the physical ones, where you know that you can go there, and when you go there, there's going to be this sense of a thin space between heaven and earth. Many of you know I, I take regular days of silence and solitude out in the Hood Canal in the Hoodsport area, and recently I was um, heading out to visit some friends in Shelton, which is like on the way, and it I, as I was driving there, this is a kid's birthday party, okay? As I was driving out there, I started to sense physically what I normally, like, build up to my times of silence and solitude. I mean, I was just in the car, but the route to that destination, there was a physical sensation that I, it was like, okay, it's time to gear up. You're about to be in silence and solitude. You're about to go through this pattern because you, you know, and I knew, that that's where it normally happens, and that's how I normally go about it. Now, I felt really confused when I got to a kid's birthday party, because silence and solitude and kid's birthday parties are not very similar. Very different environments. But that's what thin places do, where you look forward to, where you, you start to anticipate it, even bodily anticipate what you're about to experience. Now, my hope that this destination type of experience, I hope that among the Soma family, what we experience where thin spaces are normal. When we gather, that we come with an expectation that God is going to meet us here. Now, this isn't just a going through the motions, but we're, we come expecting to hear something from God. In your DNA groups, I pray that my, my hope is that those when you're bringing the gospel to bear on each other's hearts and lives, when you're meeting with those people that you can hear and sense the, the presence of God in thin space ways, living on mission and you use your gifts for building up others, ultimately it's that you will experience a life of renewal and that you're going to help others do the same. I mean, this in its truest sense is disciples who make disciples. We're changed by God. We obey God. And we help others do the same thing. 
Now, when we encounter God amidst an everyday life like I just mentioned, or these monumental mountaintop moments like Elijah did on the top of Mount Horeb, they're life-changing. But we're tempted to think that the encounter is the destination. But actually, it's just part of the larger journey of your life. So we look at Elijah, and as the finish of his journey comes into view, he comes to discover that this destination is just part of the larger journey for him. In li- that is life found in God. His journey brought him to this moment of renewal where he personally encountered the power and presence of Jesus. But afterwards, this is part of a journey that takes him from renewal and re-enters him into normal life. So as we experience thin space encounters with God, there's these areas of guidance and re-entry and temptations that we all have to experience as we go from these mountaintop encounter moments, thin spaces, back into the midst of everyday life. And I believe the primary one that we will sense, the biggest temptation going from encountering God to the the midst of everyday life is that we have the temptation to want to stay. Elijah, he's invited to reenter his ministry. So I believe he's faced with this temptation when he, the same one that we receive when we get God's renewal. It's the desire to stay right there. It can be such an impactful moment, an impactful season and time, is that you never want to leave. And the part of this is because you and I were designed to walk with God in the garden, physically, bodily, emotionally, with no separation. Our hearts long to be united with God as the Father, Son, and Spirit are united with one another. So when God meets us, when we encounter him in those thin spaces, we get a true taste of goodness and his goodness. I mean, this is what David says in Psalm 34, verse 8, and we can affirm this at this point. And what does it say there? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We, like David and Elijah, have tasted and seen the Lord's goodness when we encounter him, when we're renewed by him. We can literally taste and sense it. It's a bodily experience, okay? Now, we we move from knowing him in our brain about his kindness. We can maybe even teach on his goodness, maybe know about his gentleness and love. But when we experience it firsthand, it can be so good that we want to stay and to never leave. Not only do we want to take refuge there, as David says in Psalm 34, we want to build our houses there. Now, Elijah is not mentioned many times out of the few chapters in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And yet, one of the times that he is mentioned speaks really clearly to this desire to stay. In the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, There's a story of Jesus going up on a mountain and he reveals the fullness of his glory to his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. So this is the story commonly known as the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, as they, the Matthew, Mark, uh, excuse me, Peter, James, and John, three of his closest disciples, as they see him in his glorious, radiant white clothing, 
they see him have a conversation. Who is, uh, uh, excuse me, who is Jesus having a conversation with? None other than Moses and Elijah. The two people that we focused on a lot in this series. Two people that have encountered God on mountaintops, just like Jesus is revealing his glory. These symbolize the law and the prophets. Moses being all the law, Elijah symbolizing all the prophets. And here they see Jesus in his full glory having a conversation with them. Peter, I love Peter, in his confusion, and it actually says he's terrified, he's afraid, he offers to do what to them? To make tents. What is he doing? He says, this is so good. Let's, let's just stay. Let's not leave. This is amazing revelation of God that he's experiencing. He doesn't want to return to the other disciples. He doesn't want to go back home. This is where he, he wants to stay. When we encounter God, we're tempted to not want to leave. It's so good, so wonderful that we, like Peter, want to build a tent and not return to our normal lives. Now, these thin spaces, these encounters, this, that sense of destination, it can happen in a lot of different ways. It can be your daily office or devotional where God just ministers to your heart deeply and you don't want to go to work or you don't want to go hang out with your family anymore. Ever been there? You're on a retreat and you're experiencing God's beautiful creation in peace and serenity that he's designed and you just don't want to go back to the hustle of life. It could be silence and solitude that you begin to, they become lifelines for your spiritual maturity. So much so that you wonder if you ever want to be around people ever again. You may used to love work, but all of a sudden rest and Sabbath become so vital to your life that you don't know if you'll ever look, uh, love work like you once did. That's what, that's not what Elijah or leads Elijah or us to do. He doesn't invite us to stay there forever. Now for me, in, in my most recent experience of this, in the midst of my sabbatical, I was very comfortable staying there forever. Now I was surprised how much I, me not working, I was okay with. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the slowness and the pace of life. Extended times in prayer, no forced timelines. I enjoyed it so much that I literally remember a few days before coming back, I was overcome with like significant fear. I I, I was reading Josiah a story and it was like I couldn't hold back tears because I was so afraid that the hurriedness and rushness of life was going to diminish and devalue everything that God had done up until that point. God doesn't call us to stay. He calls us to re-enter our lives. Thankfully, we now have the Spirit to awaken our hearts to the presence of Jesus throughout all of it. And he knows one day, and we have this hope that we'll look at in a few weeks during Advent, this hope that he's going to come back again, just like they looked forward to the Messiah coming. We look forward to him returning again. And one day, the new heaven and new earth will no longer be separated. But in the meantime, God still has work for Elijah and for us to do. There's still a plan and a purpose for our lives. 
while we want to just stay in these thin places, we want to arrive at that destination. We must re-enter the journey that is life. And we have to re-enter a few different ways. We see the first way that he re-enters is he re-enters back into his calling. Elijah, and this is where we get into the text, after encountering God on the mountain, what does he do? He goes back out onto the edge and he hears God ask him the same question. What is the question that he asks? What are you doing here, Elijah? And to my amazement, Elijah responds to the question in the exact same way as before. And yet, I can't help but hear it coming from a different place in his heart. Now that he's seen God's power and glory and goodness and as he's encountered him, he's saying it from a different place of what he was originally doing it. Yes, I still think there's some frustration. There's some accusation and disappointments that we talked about last week. But in this, I think that Elijah's making a request. I think it's like Elijah's coming before God and hoping or expecting that God is going to now take away the pain, take away his difficulty, take away the threats that he's facing, to take out Ahab and Jezebel. In essence, to change his circumstances. I wouldn't be surprised that somewhere in his mind, he's hoping that he can get out of the ministry that he's called to. Now, like this, if being a prophet leads me to this level of darkness, I have to come to my, the end of myself again. I have to go through the wilderness again. I can imagine, imagine Elijah saying, you know what? I'm glad I did that one time. But if there's a way out, I'll take it. If if there's a way that I can get another calling, if I can do something else and not have to go back into the area of Jezebel and Ahab who are still trying to kill me, if there's a way I can get out, sign me up, I'll take that. But God, when God speaks, he doesn't share anything about him get changing his circumstances. He actually doubles down on his calling. And he gives him clear directions as the king who he's going to anoint and the next steps he's going to take. And because he's still called by God to the work of prophetic ministry, which means he has to go back into the circumstances of the calling, and those have remained the same. Ahab and Jezebel are still trying to kill him. He still feels alone, okay? And in God's guidance, what does he guide him to do? God tells him to go back to the wilderness, back through the 40 days where he spent slowly making his way, and back to the northern kingdom where Ahab and Jezebel have the power to fulfill their plot to kill him. God literally sends him right back to the place where his circumstances and threats remain the same. And yet, because Elijah has gone through the fullness of his journey, because he came to the end of himself and got the rest that he needed, because he was honest with God where, where he was emotionally, because he experienced the solitude of the wilderness and learned to wait on the Lord, because he, as he encountered God and was renewed by God, he was re able to re-enter the calling and circumstances of his life. And he obeyed, he listened, and he did it. 
Have you ever asked God to change the circumstances of your life? To remove a difficulty or even a difficult person or a difficult situation from your life? Or even like Jesus in the garden, have you asked that God, will this cup, can you just make this cup pass from me? Where you, you've experienced such goodness and tasted such goodness and then you look at what is normal life. You're like, God, can you just remove all that from me? Can you just handle all of it? Take it all out? We're not only invited to re-enter those circumstances. This journey of renewal does not change our circumstances. Oftentimes, what this journey does, it changes us. Um, the surrounding life and the surrounding world remains the same. But what is renewal all about? It's not changing the circumstances. It's changing you as a person. He may have wanted God to change the circumstances, but he was, God was focused on changing him. We want God to change our circumstances often. But the journey is not about that. I mean, think of how often our lives are filled, and our prayer lives especially, are filled with God's request of changing our circumstances. When we face the wilderness, face the coming to an end of yourself, when you encounter the difficult emotions along the way, even when we recognize the distance between our desires and our current reality, we often pray, God, change my circumstances. Remove what's hard. Take away the difficulty of my life. We could even ask for a new vocation, a new calling. Maybe we even ask God to give us a new place to fulfill that calling. We often ask God to bring us somewhere new. But God is making you a new someone instead. God's guidance to us as we conclude renewal is to re-enter our life's journey as new people. To bring to our circumstances a changed person. And I think this is, connects directly with how often we seek guidance from God. We often want God to answer our prayers directly. We ask him for something, and we expect him to respond in a direct fashion. In essence, that's a prayer life that's a destination. We, we want the guidance. We want, and often, if you're like me, you want it immediately. This whole waiting on the Lord thing that we talked about during the wilderness, forget that. Sign me up for, like, microwave Jesus. But notice, we want the destination, we want the guidance, but notice that through all this story, Elijah doesn't get a single piece of guidance directly from God other than to rest from the angel. There's no guidance. There's no words of direction from him. It isn't until after he encounters God that he gets direct guidance on what he is to do. Why is it that God doesn't answer our prayer immediately? Why is it that God wants us to wait? Because God is a relational God. He's designed us for a relationship with him. This is about learning how to abide. This is about learning to be united with Christ. It's about being connected to the source of our energy and power that comes from the Spirit. 
Because this is the way that you and I were designed to live, to be in constant communion with the Godhead. To change as a disciple is to learn to be more united with him. When we are convicted of sin and we repent, what's the purpose of that? It's so that we can be reunited with him. God wants to change us, to remove sin from our lives. Why? Why does he want to remove all those things? Because he wants to take away everything that's hindering you from being united with him. If sin is separation, salvation is reunion. That's the goal of all of this. And here's the thing. Yeah, I'll go here. Oftentimes we think that's it. Like, you're telling me I have to go through difficulty in life just so I can encounter God? Like, that's it? Please tell me, uh, there's other people, that you hear this. You're like, we've been focusing on six weeks of this journey, and all you're going to tell me is you get God. Yes. That's it. That's the solution. That's the fix to your problem. That's what you need. And if you think that that's not sufficient, it's because you have not fully encountered the goodness and graciousness and glory of Jesus. When you think, ah, I'll get God and then I'll go back to my normal stuff, you are missing the depth to which you were intended to be in union with Jesus. The fullness that he brings to you is like nothing that the world or nothing we can manufacture. It's so deep, so profound, that once you get a taste of it, you can say, oh, just give me more of that. The guidance, yeah, that's cool. Changing life circumstances, yeah, that's cool. But if I have to endure suffering more so that I can encounter him more, I'll sign up for it. That's what encountering God changes you to be. Not where you go around it or over it or under it, but you get to the point where you see wilderness and you say, you know what? I'm willing to go through it. Why? Because I know I get him on the other side. I know it's going to be difficult. I know it's going to be hard. I know I'm not going to like it. And yet, I get him. That is a changed heart. That is what we get when we realize our union with him. And I know whether you profess faith or not yet, I know that every single one of our hearts longs for that. All of us long for that satisfaction, long for that depth, long for that union with something or someone. And brothers and sisters, I submit to you, it's only found in Jesus and Jesus alone. It's only found in the Father, Son, Spirit. It's only found in our salvation and reunion with coming to Christ. And that is the goal. That is our destination. That is what fuels the journey of all of our lives. So if we ever come to a gathering or a missional community and say, okay, guys, we're going to pray and we're going to encounter God with one another. And trust me, I do this. It's like, oh, that's it? That's all we're doing? Shouldn't we be doing more than that? You tell me mission is just helping people encounter Jesus? 
You're telling me that I'm just telling people about what's been experienced in my life and sharing it with them, inviting them on my journey of discipleship? You're telling me that that's all there is? Yes. And it takes everything we've got to be able to learn that that is sufficient, that that is enough, that that is not just the destination, but it's the journey. And I think we're tempted to think also that this change can just happen once. And that this being renewed by God only happens in these mountaintop experiences. That once I get that one, if I can have that mountainside experience like Elijah did, like Moses did, like the disciples did, if I just get that, then I'll be good. The temptation is, one time is enough, but that's not enough to sustain our life in Christ. Elijah was invited to re-enter from this renewal journey as a changed person. Like Elijah, when we have these renewed by God in profound ways moments, you and I can tend to ride the wave of that encounter for a while. It's this recognition that God did something super good, super powerful, awesome, love it. And it's like you, you're on a mountain and you're riding a bike and it's downhill. Have you ever ridden a bike downhill? It just makes it all easier, right? You don't really have to pedal that hard. It's not really hard work. You're just kind of going. That's when like encountering God is like. That's what those mountaintops experience is like. Everything is just easy. But what happens when you're no longer riding downhill? And you're like, okay, I'm going to ride this. Yeah, that was cool like six months ago. Yeah, I was in my Bible and I heard God speak to me six months ago. I'm just going to keep, that's enough, right? I did that one time. It was cool. And now I'm just going to ride the wave for the rest of my life. Our task is that we, these renewal moments, not just the mountaintop moments, but the everyday moments, we need them on a regular basis. And we need them often. Like so often, actually, as, as you lean into this, you're like, wow, I actually need like those reminders more than a couple times a day. Like I, I, how easily does my heart and life wander away from united with Christ? How often do the worries of the world come in and absorb our minds? How often do the frustrations and difficulty become more dominant in our lives than Jesus in our lives? I think the story of Moses here is quite instructive. I don't have time to do this whole point, but in Exodus chapter 33, we see Moses encountering God. He's, he, his face shines brightly. He physically changes. And he comes down from Mount Sinai, same place, with the Ten Commandments, and his face is shining so brightly, he has to put a veil on his face, okay? Awesome, super cool, but this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. The whole passage is 7 through 18, but I'm just gonna read some, uh, portions of it, um, and, then, and this is in the NLT. Listen to this, it says, The old way um, with laws etched in stone led to death, though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at his face. For his face shone with the glory of God, listen to this, even though the brightness was already fading away. Verse 8, shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? 
if the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way which makes us right with God? In fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared to with the overwhelming glory of the new way. And I'm going to skip down uh, verse 13. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory even though it was destined to fail. And verse 18, so all of us who have uh, had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. Recap, Moses encounters God, physically changed. His face was shown with glory, but it was fading away. That time that he encountered God was not meant to last forever. So what did he do? The veil was not just to protect Israel. It was to protect his reputation. His glory was fading, and he wanted people to not see it that way. So Paul goes on to say that the law does this, but for those of us who are in Christ, who have believed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, have the invitation to see and reflect his glory all the time. In fact, what Paul is saying is if you think what Moses experienced was powerful and magnificent, you have an invitation to something bigger and more profound than even Moses himself. So when we look to the Old Testament prophet and we're like, man, that's cool. The invitation for us is that we get it more often and more profoundly than even they did. I mean, do you believe that? Do you expect that from God? That the veil that was limiting us from seeing the fullness of God has been removed. That the spirit that is constantly at work in our lives to reveal the glory of Jesus so we can become like him, as it says in verse 18. Paul is clear. It's not a one-time moment. But we are changed one degree at a time over and over and over again. Now the reality is that when we are renewed by God and we experience him, we get back into the regular rhythms of life, and what happens? The glory starts to fade. We're bombarded, our hearts and our minds, with the cares of the world. If you think that a one-time destination encounter with God is sufficient, it's not to sustain our life. If you th when was the last time you had a clear encounter with God? And was that enough? Are you still riding the wave of that time? Are you like Moses, still covering up what God did in that moment? Because you don't want others to see that the glory is fading. What veil are you wearing to protect you from others seeing the true state of your faith? Or... Do you have an expectation that renewal is an ongoing project? It's not a destination, it's a journey that you and I get to experience regular, reoccurring opportunities to experience God in more profound ways than even Moses himself. I mean, do we? We walk into the doors of Sahali Middle School surrounded by all sorts of stuff. Fly stuff. 
Do you expect to meet God? When you meet with your DNA group, do you have an expectation that God's going to speak through one another? Do you show up saying, you know what? God it wants to use me to build up and encourage my brother and sister in Christ. Is there an expectation? This is something that we can learn from our charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ. They come expectant. They come ready. And we need some more of that. This is lacking in our tradition of the faith, where it's just like, oh, yeah, I hope God does it. Oh, God's sovereign. He'll do it when he does it. And yes, that's true. And there's an expectation that we are to bring to encountering God. There's an expectation. And it's, it's the ask, seek, knock. Expectation is knocking on the door. It's asking God, God, would you do this? We're going to trust you to bring renewal when you decide to do it. We want to bring viral renewal, which is revival. We want that. We're expecting you to do it, and we're open to when you decide to do it. But we come wanting you to do it, and not just once, but over and over and over again. And the, la- the last thing Elijah's invited to re-enter, he's invited to re-enter into community. Verse 3 of chapter 19 says that he left this servant. So there's a servant that's been with Elijah, presumably all of his ministry. This journey that he's been on is one of aloneness, though. He's intentionally not by with anybody else. He's by himself. So when Elijah comes to an end of himself, when he gets some rest, he's alone in the wilderness. He's alone in Mount Horeb when he encounters God. Now, while he mostly has been in community during his ministry... This has been a journey that's one of solitude. The part of the renewal journey that's tough is that you can feel so alone. And in ways, you have to do this alone. You can't time up a journey of renewal with your spouse. It's nice to do it that way, but you just can't do that. You can't do it with your DNA group. Sometimes God just brings you to a moment of suffering or difficulty or coming to an end of yourself. And it's just you. The the way it's being done in you is just, you can't manufacture bringing it on. Sometimes others, as you're in the middle of your own journey, they start to question what's going on. As you're growing in emotional awareness and you're facing the wilderness, you start asking different questions. You start saying different things. And all of a sudden, you're like Elijah and say, hey, I'm the only one left. Like, does anybody else not get what's going on right now? And there's this aloneness to it. And I think that that's a significant part of this whole experience. The scary part and the difficulty is that if it leaves you there and you're there forever, even though there were physical seasons of physical and spiritual aloneness of, and, and solitude for Elijah, he brings him back into community. He tells him, hey, you're, you're going to get your servant. Elijah goes and gets his servant, but he's going to go get Elisha. He's going to anoint new people. He's going to get a co-laborer. He's going to get a teammate. He's going to now do his ministry from a different place with somebody different. Because we are made in the image of a relational God, mission happens best 
in community, whether it's Jesus and his 12 disciples, whether it's Moses and Aaron, Paul and his 90-plus ministry partners, or Elijah and Elijah, Elisha, God's people are intended to work and minister in community. And yet, sometimes in the midst of community, you have this aloneness that you have to walk. People can be present with you. They can listen. They can be empathetic. You're not completely in silence and solitude. You're not completely removed. But internally, you're going about something, and you have to. And the concern is that that becomes a forever thing. In many ways, what I've been introducing in this series are the contemplative disciplines of the historical church. Richard Foster, in his marvelous book, Streams of Living Water, he details the strengths and weaknesses of six different traditions of the Christian faith. And I believe there's wonderful things that we can learn from each of these traditions. However, there are also pitfalls. This is what he says. The contemplative stress upon our solitariness before God a message we desperately need to hear. It can lead us, especially in the Western church, to an individualism that thinks only in terms of God and me. This is the, a, a few different temptations here. It's one, it's one of them is what I'll call navel-gazing. In these contemplative disciplines, you tend to be focusing on yourself. You tend to be growing in self-awareness. You tend to be um, learning about what's going on in your own life. You can be learning how God's wired you, but oftentimes we can neglect the fact that this is all for the sake of other people. Your journey towards being renewed by God is for the sake of others. I think the tendency among my generation and what I'm seeing around me is around personality tests. This navel-gazing, whether it's Myers-Briggs, DISC, Enneagram, Culture in the Next, the list goes on and on. We can, be, um, we can be so consumed that our thoughts about trying to understand ourselves that we neglect the fact that God given us these gifts for the sake of other people. Yes, you are such and such number. Cool. How does that help you in relationship with other people? The tendency in our Western society is to take those and solely focus on myself. Solely focus what I learn about me. Slowly think about myself. I'm navel-gazing and only thinking internally. And this temptation of the solo aspect of, of renewal tends to think that it's all about what's going on in me. But then secondarily, I think there's one, a temptation of pride. When we encounter God, you can have this tendency that you can look down on others who have not or have yet to have encounters like you. Maybe you're in further parts of the journey and you look back at other people, quote-unquote, behind you in naivety. If only you encountered God like I did. Paul has some amazing encounters with God's renewing power. 2 Corinthians 12 tells us of things he could boast in. He had revelations of the third heavens. He heard inexpressible words from Jesus. Amazing stuff. But listen to 2 Corinthians 12, 7. He says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. You have these amazing things that God's doing in you. 
God speaks to you. God works in you. God profoundly shows up in your life. And you can look around and say, oh, if only they had what I have. Subtle. Grace. Because in part of the way, you want that. You want to be able to say, man, what I have, this God gave me is so profound. Man, I wish other people got more of that. But it can shift into, man, what I have is so good. Man, I'm so good. It's really, really kind. It's really subtle. And all of a sudden, you're looking down on people. You're not using this for them. You come as the hero of their journey, as opposed to a guide that can help them do their own. So we come to this end of this journey, and the end of the journey is just continuing what God has already been doing in him this whole time. It's a re-entry into his normal life. His circumstances don't change. He changes. He was doing this in solitude. Now he's doing it in community. And so we now, for us, ask the question, okay, what's, what does this look like for us? How can we put ourselves in a position, in a place where we can regularly set our lives up to be renewed by God and help other people renew him. Pete Scazzaro says this. He says, our present spiritual practices are not enough to keep us afloat in the ocean of the beast, the Babylon of the 21st century world. Fighting against such a strong current without the anchor of a rule of life is almost impossible. Eventually, we find ourselves unfocused, distracted, and adrift spiritually. What, um, you can, underneath some of your seats are a, a box. There's some folders in there. If you want to go ahead and start passing those out. We must tap into the wisdom of the church that's been going around for almost two millennia to learn how we can live our lives in a way that allows us to bring all the wisdom of the contemplative, charismatic, evangelical, reformed, all those beautiful traditions to bear on our lives. And so this is what um, we have in front of you, which is called the rule of life. Now, before you open this, simply stated, this is an intentional way of living life where you grow in your abiding in Jesus. That's as simple as I can say this. You already have a rule of life. And by rule, I don't mean like um, standard. I mean way of doing things. You already have one in all these different areas that I'm about to go through. The question is, is it intentionally thought through and is it intentionally setting you up to learn to be renewed by Jesus? Is it helping your life in Christ or is it hindering your life in Christ? This originated with the Desert Fathers. They tried to remove the distraction from their lives. Um, the first one is found in the 3rd century. Benedict made it popular in the 5th and 6th century. And it's been shaping the church for 1,500 years. This is not this new cool thing. This is something that's been around in the church forever. And so this is what we're, we're going to be doing over the next little bit. I want to draw your attention to the back page. It looks like this little grid. The idea of this workbook is to give you personally and your family an opportunity to have intentional, prayerful conversations so that by the beginning of the new year or in the first couple months of the new year, you're living out an intentional plan for your life. 
you're, you're thoughtful, you're prayerful, you're asking God, okay, what, how does this part of my life, how is it set up right now? So there's seven different categories that we're going to be inviting you to be thinking through. There's abiding, which is your spiritual life in Christ, your mind, your body, relationships, rest, work money, and mission and hospitality, okay? There's seven kind of different general categories. What the goal is, is that you personally start to proactively think through each of those categories and start to think through, uh, what are the daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and even annually, if you can do that, ways in which you can be intentional to grow in Christ in that area of your life. So if I take one, uh, one place, if I take rest, on a daily, pra- remember we talked about rest, we talked about like breaks throughout the day. Okay, what does it look like for you to try to make sure that you're getting rest daily? Maybe you're getting like six hours of sleep right now. You know what, your goal is to say, I need to get seven and a half to eight hours of sleep. That's the rule right there. Perfect. That's what it is. You want to take a day off. Great. That's your weekly practice. Try it. So the goal is put it out there. Like, be really intentional with it. Practice it for a little bit. Like, okay, let's try this out for a couple weeks. Does that work? No, all of a sudden, like, I have all these things that I'm trying to do, and it's becoming, like, cumbersome. It's becoming difficult. It's becoming hard. Great. Good awareness. Change it. What we're not doing is saying, here's the rule of life for all of us. You have to live according to this. What we're saying is, according to how the Spirit is working in your life, with your relationships, your stage of life, your stage of spiritual maturity, all those things, this workbook is to give you an intentional guide for conversations and prayer so that you can regularly and continually set your life up to encounter Jesus. That's what this is all about. That grid I showed you, do I expect there to be multiple bullet points in each of these? Not necessarily. One, because you don't have the handwriting of a mouse, and that's not enough space. It could just be a checkbox. Like, okay, we've thought through mind, which includes how we consume technology. You know what? I want to make sure my, my phone, it's, this is forming my brain. I want to be off by... T- 9 o'clock at night, make sure I have it 45 minutes before I go to bed where I'm not looking at any screen, and I'm not going to go to it the first thing in the morning. See what I'm saying? It's putting these practices in place for you to be really, really intentional with that. There's going to be times over the next couple weeks where we're just going to highlight some of these. Um, I pray that in your MC, um, you can think it through. Uh, in your DNA, you can utilize this. To say, okay, how is our life? Is it intentional or not? Um, if you want to process and walk through this with somebody or you have questions or thoughts, Steve and Janet, we've been talking about, okay, how can they make themselves available? So it's like, hey, we just want to meet you where you are, and we just want to process this through with you. That's the, what the rule of life is all about. It's not a rule as in one more thing you've got to do, but no, we, you already have this. I want us to be intentional. Because if we're going to be going on a journey of experiencing God's renewal, we're going to have to be very intentional in this age of anxiety. So what I'm going to do, the kids are going to return. The kids are going to return to you, and we're going to do communion all together. Okay? So let me pray. You're going to go to the table. Bring your kids along with you. 
there's going to be some piano and some singing as you go to that. And then what we're going to do is we're going to, um, I invite you to just take it together as a family. So get in your own little uh, circle, your own little pod, pray over the elements, take that, and then we're going to sing uh, one or two more songs before we come to a close. So all that I've said is all because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. His sacrifice allows for us to be reunited. His death and resurrection is the only way to the Father, which is the only way to experience the fullness of renewal. So as you go to the table, this is a reminder of God's very presence among us to renew us, to um, bring about revival in our hearts and in the lives around us so that we can be changed and help other people change. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are bringing us on a journey to be intentionally thoughtful on how we set up our lives to be renewed by you. So, Jesus, I pray that you, even in this time, God, as we talked about a minute ago, we expect to meet you. We desire it. We think that in your sovereignty and in your goodness, you will choose to meet us right here, right now, to renew us bit by bit, moment by moment. Yes, we ask for those mountain moments that Elijah and Moses and Peter, James and John had. But God, in the meantime, will you renew us day by day? Will you, as Psalm says, revive us again? So we go to the table to remember. We go to the table to be expressive of our faith in you, that we believe in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And we believe that you and your goodness are going to renew this us as individuals, and that's going to bleed into our DNA groups, our MCs, our whole church, and ultimately, by your grace, into our city. So, Father, we thank you. We pray for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go to the table.